What do you think? I think we're dead meat. Real dead meat. You're dead meat! Go ahead and laugh, you guys. If I ever find a little bastard, it's business. Welcome to the Dead Meat Podcast. I'm Chelsea. James is not here this week. We've both actually been very busy and have gotten behind in our work uh, for good reasons. We've been house hunting and we actually this week found a place we love and have been working on closing that deal and moving to a new place soon. So just exciting stuff. But, you know, we've been busier than normal. So James did not have time to record with me this week. We were going to do arachnophobia. We're still going to do that next week. So don't worry if you were excited or I guess not excited for an episode with all kinds of spiders in it. So (laughs) I guess that's for next week. This week, uh, no visuals of spiders, I promise. Instead, we're going to do some stories by HP Lovecraft. I still want to keep it creature themed because we're doing our creature feature summer and I feel like this guy is just the ultimate creature author. He's influenced so many of our favorites Um, and you know I, I associate him with creatures at least. I mean I think if you asked people to do kind of a one word association with H.P. Lovecraft maybe the first the first thing they think of is Cthulhu or like (laughs) racism (laughs) like does this family feud number two that little thing flips down it's racism (laughs) maybe (laughs) I'll mention that right off the bat too I think it's you know I don't want to talk about H.P. Lovecraft on the podcast without addressing the fact that like yeah he was super duper racist um his books are you know as much as they're about the fear of the the unknown the the foreign it's like yeah we can okay talk about creatures and some existential shit but that also applies to stuff like "Mm, foreigners and immigrants and people who aren't white um so that's not great i think it would be uh irresponsible of me to at least not address that even though i think at this point like it's all that's pretty commonly known uh but hey the dude's dead he's not profiting from this podcast at all so we can enjoy the stuff about him that's great uh and still address the stuff that's not and james insisted that i also recommend a book if you like hp lovecraft um the ballad of black tom by victor laval he's a uh, black author rewrote one of H.P. Lovecraft's short stories, The Horror Red Hook, from the perspective of a black character in that short story, because that's one of his, uh, I think, one of his more racist short stories, if you can believe it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's this, uh, James loved this book. So it's it's that short story. It's it's rewritten. So this is someone who, who loves, uh, this author loves H.P. Lovecraft. I mean, you'd have to love him a lot to be able to rewrite an entire work of his like you have to have such a good understanding of the material but you know also kind of dealing with how you know the the complexities of this dude as a as a human um so i think it's like a neat way to kind of look at hp lovecraft and you know so check it out the ballad of black tom by victor laval all right uh we're gonna do i think two stories i'm gonna do dagon and from beyond which is exciting we covered from beyond the movie um stuart gordon few maybe that was like a few months ago already but i thought hey why not read the short because there's some critters in that so perfect i love that short it's so wild just reading the dialogue 
in From Beyond how much it just it's just Jeffrey Combs. Like it's it's H.P. Lovecraft wrote this dialogue for Jeffrey Combs <laughs> like decades ago. It's absolutely wonderful. So I hope you guys enjoy. I'm also going to get this ad out of the way first because we do have an ad this week and I don't want it to interrupt the good vibes of our story time. So here we go. This week's sponsor is HelloFresh. James and I love HelloFresh. We're both just kind of indecisive people in terms of what food we think sounds good. We've wasted so much food and we both hate planning menus for the week too. It's the worst, but HelloFresh, you don't even have to think about it. Everything that comes is great. They even have veggie meals, veggie box options. So, which are, you know, it's like real, it's not just salads, which I love. I love when people understand that vegetarians don't just like eating leafy greens all the time. There's other foods we like. Also, just a way to avoid going to the grocery store right now, which is good. And we should all be staying at home if we can. Delivery, that's a really safe way to go about getting fresh food during the coronavirus pandemic. It saves time, too. Each meal only takes about 30 minutes. That's one of the things that drives me nuts about the uh part of life where I have to feed myself (laughs) is the time it takes to make meals. It's just I don't have enough time in the day. But it's nice that this only takes half an hour for food that's actually good for you. So right now, if you want to try HelloFresh, you can go to HelloFresh.com slash 80DEADMEAT to get $80 off your order with code 80DEADMEAT and free shipping too. So again, if you want to try HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash 80DEADMEAT and use code 80DEADMEAT to get a total of $80 off, including free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions apply. Go to HelloFresh.com for more details. All right, on to our HP Lovecraft Power Hour. It might not be quite an hour once I edit this all together, but we're just going to call it that because I I like how that sounds. So here we go. Dagon. I am writing this under an appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more. Penniless and at the end of my supply of the drug which alone makes life endurable, I can bear the torture no longer and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think from my slavery to morphine that I am a weakling or a degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, though never fully realize, why it is I must have forgetfulness or death. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell a victim to the German sea raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made a legitimate prize, whilst we of her crew were treated with all the fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners. So liberal, indeed, was the discipline of our captors, that five days after we were taken I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself adrift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess vaguely by the sun and stars that I was somewhat south of the equator. Of the longitude I knew nothing, and no island or coastline was in sight. 
The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship or to be cast on the shores of some habitable island. But neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair in my solitude upon the heaving vastnesses of unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know, for my slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I awaked, it was to discover myself half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire which extended about me in monotonous undulations as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. Though one might well imagine that my first sensation would be to wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation of scenery, I was in reality more horrified than astonished, for there was in the air and in the rotting soil a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish and of other less describable things which I saw protruding from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing and nothing in sight save a vast reach of black slime. Yet the very completeness of the stillness and the homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from the sky, which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized that only one theory could explain my position. Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions which for innumerable millions of years had lain hidden under unfathomable watery depths. So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath me, that I could not detect the faintest noise of the surging ocean, strain my ears as I might, nor were there any sea-fowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours I sat thinking or brooding in the boat, which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for traveling purposes in a short time. That night I slept but little, and the next day I made for myself a pack containing food and water, preparatory to an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of the fish was maddening, but I was too much concerned with graver things to mind so slight an evil, and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily westward, guided by a faraway hummock which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. That night I encamped, and on the following day still traveled towards the hummock, though that object seemed scarcely nearer than when I had first espied it. By the fourth evening I attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it had appeared from a distance, an intervening valley setting it out in sharper relief from the general surface. Too weary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night, but ere the waning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again, and in the glow of the moon I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy. Indeed, I now felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset. 
Picking up my pack, I started for the crest of the eminence. I have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me, but I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down into the other side into an immeasurable pit or canyon whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to illumine. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. Through my terror ran curious reminiscences of Paradise Lost and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky, I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easy footholds for a descent, whilst after a drop of a few hundred feet the declivity became very gradual. Urged on by an impulse which I cannot definitely analyze, I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the gentler slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian deeps where no light had yet penetrated. All at once my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope, which rose steeply about a hundred yards in front of me, an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself, but I was conscious of a distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with sensations I cannot express, for despite its enormous magnitude and its position in an abyss which had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith, whose massive bulk had known the workmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of the scientist's or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near the zenith, shone weirdly and vividly above the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm, and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions and almost lapping my feet as I stood on the slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surface I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphics unknown to me, and unlike anything I had ever seen in books. Consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols such as fishes, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like, several characters obviously represented marine things which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I had observed on the ocean-risen plain. It was the pictorial carving, however, that did most to hold me spellbound. Plainly visible across the intervening water on account of their enormous size were an array of bas-reliefs whose subjects would have excited the envy of Adore. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shown disporting like fishes in the waters of some marine grotto, or paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. Of their faces and forms I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a Poe or a Bulwer, they were damnably human in general outline despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes, and other features less pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, they seemed to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale represented as but little larger than himself, 
I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fishing or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendant had perished eras before the first ancestor of the Piltdown or Neanderthal man was born. Awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into a past beyond the conception of the most daring anthropologist, I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel before me. Then suddenly, I saw it. With only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface, the thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast, polyphemous-like, and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms, the while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad then. Of my frantic ascent of the sloping cliff, and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remember little. I believe I sang a great deal, and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I have indistinct recollections of a great storm some time after I reached the boat. At any rate, I know that I heard peals of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods. When I came out of the shadows, I was in a San Francisco hospital, brought thither by the captain of the American ship which had picked up my boat in mid-ocean. In my delirium I had said much, but found that my words had been given scant attention. Of any land upheaval in the Pacific, my rescuers knew nothing, nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe. Once I sought out a celebrated ethnologist and amused him with peculiar questions regarding the ancient Philistine legend of Dagon, the fish god, but soon perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It is at night, especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug has given only transient surcease and has drawn me into its clutches as a hopeless slave. So now, I am to end it all, having written a full account for the information or the contemptuous amusement of my fellow men. Often I ask myself if it could not all have been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fever as I lay sun-stricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man-of-war. This I ask myself, but ever does there come before me a hideously vivid vision in reply. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likenesses on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the billows to drag down in their reeking talons the remnants of puny, war-exhausted mankind, of a day when the land shall sink and the dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst universal pandemonium. The end is near. I hear a noise at the door, as of some immense slippery body lumbering against it. It shall not find me. God, that hand. The window. The window. From Beyond Horrible beyond conception was the change which had taken place in my best friend, Crawford Tillingast. I had not seen him since that day, two months and a half before, when he had told me what goal his physical and metaphysical researches were leading, 
when he had answered my awed and almost frightened remonstrances by driving me from his laboratory and his house in a burst of fanatical rage. I had known that he now remained mostly shut in the attic laboratory with that accursed electrical machine, eating little and excluding even the servants, but I had not thought that a brief period of ten weeks could so alter and disfigure any human creature. It is not pleasant to see a stout man suddenly grown thin, and it is even worse when the baggy skin becomes yellowed or grayed, the eyes sunken, circled, and uncannily glowing, the forehead veined and corrugated, and the hands tremulous and twitching. And if added to this there be a repellent unkemptness, a wild disorder of dress, a bushiness of dark hair white at the roots, and an unchecked growth of pure white beard on a face once clean-shaven, the cumulative effect is quite shocking. But such was the aspect of Crawford Tillinghast on the night his half-coherent message brought me to his door after my weeks of exile, such the specter that trembled as it admitted me, candle in hand, and glanced furtively over its shoulder as if fearful of unseen things in the ancient, lonely house set back from Benevolent Street. That Crawford Tillinghast should ever have studied science and philosophy was a mistake. These things should be left to the frigid and impersonal investigator, for they offer two equally tragic alternatives to the man of feeling and action. Despair if he fail in his quest, and terrors unutterable and unimaginable if he succeed. Tillinghast had once been the prey of failure, solitary and melancholy, but now I knew, with nauseating fears of my own, that he was the prey of success. I had indeed warned him ten weeks before when he burst forth with his tale of what he felt himself about to discover. He had been flushed and excited then, talking in a high and unnatural, though always pedantic, voice. What do we know, he had said, of the world and the universe about us? Our means of receiving impressions are absurdly few, and our notions of surrounding objects infinitely narrow. We see things only as we are constructed to see them, and can gain no idea of their absolute nature. With five feeble senses we pretend to comprehend the boundlessly complex cosmos, yet other beings with a wider, stronger, or different range of senses might not only see very differently the things we see, but might see and study whole worlds of matter, energy, and life which lie close at hand yet can never be detected with the senses we have. I have always believed that such strange and accessible worlds exist at our very elbows, and now I believe I have found a way to break down the barriers. I am not joking. Within 24 hours, that machine near the table will generate waves acting on unrecognized sense organs that exist in us as atrophied or rudimentary vestiges. Those waves will open up to us many vistas unknown to man, and several unknown to anything we consider organic life. We shall see that at which dogs howl in the dark, and that at which cats prick up their ears after midnight. We shall see these things, and other things which no breathing creature has yet seen. We shall overleap time, space, and dimensions, and without bodily motion peer to the bottom of creation. When Tillinghast said these things, I remonstrated, for I knew him well enough to be frightened rather than amused, but he was a fanatic and drove me from the house. Now he was no less a fanatic, but his desire to speak had conquered his resentment, and he had written me imperatively in a hand I could scarcely recognize. As I entered the abode of the friend so suddenly metamorphosed into a shivering gargoyle, 
I became infected with a terror which seemed stalking in all the shadows. The words and beliefs expressed ten weeks before seemed bodied forth in the darkness beyond the small circle of candlelight, and I sickened at the hollow, altered voice of my host. I wished the servants were about, and did not like it when he said they had all left three days previously. It seemed strange that old Gregory, at least, should desert his master without telling as tried a friend as I. It was he who had given me all the information I had of Tillinghast after I was repulsed in rage. Yet I soon subordinated all my fears to my growing curiosity and fascination. Just what Crawford Tillinghast now wished of me I could only guess, but that he had some stupendous secret or discovery to impart I could not doubt. Before I had protested at his unnatural pryings into the unthinkable, now that he had evidently succeeded to some degree I almost shared his spirit terrible though the cost of victory appeared. Up through the dark emptiness of the house, I followed the bobbing candle in the hand of the shaking parody on man. The electricity seemed to be turned off, and when I asked my guide, he said it was for a definite reason. It would be too much. I would not dare, he continued to mutter. I especially noted his new habit of muttering, for it was not like him to talk to himself. We entered the laboratory in the attic, and I observed that detestable electrical machine glowing with a sickly, sinister violet luminosity. It was connected with a powerful chemical battery, but seemed to be receiving no current, for I recalled that in its experimental stage it had sputtered and purred when in action. In reply to my question, Tillinghast mumbled that this permanent glow was not electrical in any sense that I could understand. He now seated me near the machine, so that it was on my right, and turned a bulb somewhere below the crowning cluster of glass bulbs. The usual sputtering began, turned to a whine, and terminated in a drone so soft as to suggest a return to silence. Meanwhile, the luminosity increased, waned again, then assumed a pale, outre color or blend of colors which I could neither place nor describe. Tillinghast had been watching me, and noted my puzzled expression. Do you know what that is? He whispered. That is ultraviolet. He chuckled oddly at my surprise. You thought ultraviolet was invisible. And so it is, but you can see that and many other invisible things. Now, listen to me. The waves from that thing are waking a thousand sleeping senses in us. Senses which we inherit from eons of evolution from the state of detached electrons to the state of organic humanity. I have seen truth, and I intend to show it to you. Do you wonder how it will seem? I will tell you. Here Tillinghast seated himself directly opposite me, blowing out his candle and staring hideously into my eyes. Your existing sense organs, ears first, I think will pick up many of the impressions, for they are closely connected with the dormant organs. Then, there will be others. You have heard of the pineal gland. I laugh at the shallow endocrinologist, fellow dupe, and fellow parvenu of the Freudian. That gland is the great sense organ of organs, I have found out. It is like sight in the end, and transmits visual pictures to the brain. If you are normal, that is the way you ought to get most of it. I mean, get most of the evidence from beyond. I looked about the immense attic room with a sloping south wall, dimly lit by rays which the everyday eye cannot see. The far corners were all shadows, 
and the whole place took on a hazy unreality which obscured its nature and invited the imagination to symbolism and phantasm. During the interval that Tillinghast was silent, I fancied myself in some vast and incredible temple of long-dead gods, some vague edifice of innumerable black stone columns, reaching up from a floor of damp slabs to a cloudy height beyond the range of my vision. The picture was very vivid for a while, but gradually gave way to a more horrible conception, that of utter, absolute solitude in infinite, sightless, soundless space. There seemed to be a void, and nothing more, and I felt a childish fear which prompted me to draw from my hip pocket the revolver I always carried after dark since the night I was held up in East Providence. Then, from the farthermost regions of remoteness, the sound softly glided into existence. It was infinitely faint, subtly vibrant, and unmistakably musical, but held a quality of surpassing wildness which made its impact feel like a delicate torture of my whole body. I felt sensations like those one feels when accidentally scratching ground glass. Simultaneously, there developed something like a cold draft, which apparently swept past me from the direction of the distant sound. As I waited breathlessly, I perceived that both sound and wind were increasing, the effect being to give me an odd notion of myself as tied to a pair of rails in the path of a giant approaching locomotive. I began to speak to Tillinghast, and as I did so, all the unusual impressions abruptly vanished. I saw only the man, the glowing machine, and the dim apartment. Tillinghast was grinning repulsively at the revolver which I had almost unconsciously drawn, but from his expression I was sure he had seen and heard as much as I, if not a great deal more. I whispered what I had experienced, and he bade me to remain as quiet and receptive as possible. Don't move, he cautioned, for in these rays we are able to be seen as well as to see. I told you the servants left, but I didn't tell you how. It was that thick-witted housekeeper. She turned on the lights downstairs after I had warned her not to, and the wires picked up sympathetic vibrations. It must have been frightful. I could hear the screams up here in spite of all I was seeing and hearing from another direction, and later it was rather awful to find those empty heaps of clothes around the house. Mrs. Updike's clothes were close to the front hall switch, that's how I know she did it. It got them all. But so long as we don't move, we are fairly safe. Remember, we're dealing with a hideous world in which we are practically helpless. Keep still. The combined shock of the revelation and of the abrupt command gave me a kind of paralysis, and in my terror my mind again opened to the impressions coming from what Tillinghast called beyond. I was now in a vortex of sound and motion, with confused pictures before my eyes, I saw the blurred outlines of the room, but from some point in space there seemed to be pouring a seething column of unrecognizable shapes or clouds, penetrating the solid roof at a point ahead and to the right of me. Then I glimpsed the temple-like effect again, but this time the pillars reached up into an aerial ocean of light, which sent down one blinding beam along the path of the cloudy column I had seen before. After that the scene was almost wholly kaleidoscopic and in the jumble of sights, sounds, and unidentified sense impressions I felt that I was about to dissolve or in some way lose the solid form. One definite flash I shall always remember. I seemed for an instant to behold a patch of strange night sky filled with shining revolving spheres, 
and as it receded, I saw that the glowing suns formed a constellation or galaxy of settled shape, this shape being the distorted face of Crawford Tillingast. At another time, I felt the huge, animate things brushing past me and occasionally walking or drifting through my supposedly solid body, and I thought I saw Tillingast look at them as though his better-trained senses could catch them visually. I recalled what he had said of the pineal gland, and wondered what he saw with this preternatural eye. Suddenly, I myself became possessed of a kind of augmented sight. Over and above the luminous and shadowy chaos arose a picture which, though vague, held the elements of consistency and permanence. It was indeed somewhat familiar, for the unusual part was superimposed upon the usual terrestrial scene, much as a cinema view may be thrown upon the painted curtain of a theater. I saw the attic laboratory, the electrical machine, and the unsightly form of Tillingast opposite me. But of all the space unoccupied by familiar material objects, not one particle was vacant. Indescribable shapes, both alive and otherwise, were mixed in disgusting array, and close to every known thing were whole worlds of alien, unknown entities. It likewise seemed that all of the known things entered into the composition of other unknown things and vice versa. Foremost among the living objects were great inky jellyfish monstrosities which flabbily quivered in harmony with the vibrations from the machine. They were present in loathsome profusion, and I saw to my horror that they overlapped, that they were semi-fluid and capable of passing through one another and through what we know as solids. These things were never still, but seemed ever floating about with some malignant purpose. Sometimes they appeared to devour one another, the attacker launching itself at its victim and instantaneously obliterating the latter from sight. Shudderingly, I felt that I knew what had obliterated the unfortunate servants and could not exclude the things from my mind as I strove to observe other properties of the newly visible world that lies unseen around us. But Tillingest had been watching me and was speaking. You see them? You see them? You see the things that float and flop about you and through every moment of your life? You see the creatures that form what men call the pure air and the blue sky? Have I not succeeded in breaking down the barrier? Have I not shown you worlds that no other living men have seen? I heard him scream through the terrible chaos and looked at the wild face thrust so offensively close to mine. His eyes were pits of flame and they glared at me with what I now saw was overwhelming hatred. The machine droned detestably. You think those floundering things wiped out the servants? Fool, they are harmless. But the servants are gone, aren't they? You tried to stop me. You discouraged me when I needed every drop of encouragement I could get. You were afraid of the cosmic truth, you damned coward, but now I've got you. What swept up the servants? What made them scream so loud? You'll know soon enough. Look at me, listen to what I say. Do you suppose there are really any such things as time and magnitude? Do you fancy there are such things as form or matter? I tell you, I have struck depths that your little brain can't picture. I have seen beyond the bounds of infinity and drawn down demons from the stars. I have harnessed the shadows that stride from world to world to sow death and madness. Space belongs to me, do you hear? Things are hunting me now, the things that devour and dissolve, but I know how to elude them. It is you they will get, as they got the servants. Stirring, dear sir, I told you it was dangerous to move. I have saved you so far by telling you to keep still. 
saved you to see more sights and to listen to me. If you had moved, they would have been at you long ago. Don't worry, they won't hurt you. They didn't hurt the servants. It was seeing that made the poor devil scream so. My pets are not pretty, for they come out of places where aesthetics are very different. Disintegration is quite painless, I assure you, but I want you to see them. I almost saw them, but I knew how to stop. You are not curious? I always knew you were no scientist. Trembling, eh? Trembling with anxiety to see the ultimate things I have discovered? Why don't you move, then? Tired? Well, don't worry, my friend, for they are coming. Look. Look, curse you, look. It's just over your left shoulder. What remains to be told is very brief and may be familiar to you from the newspaper accounts. The police heard a shot in the old Tillinghast house and found us there, Tillinghast dead and me unconscious. They arrested me because the revolver was in my hand, but released me in three hours after they found it was apoplexy which had finished Tillinghast and saw that my shot had been directed at the noxious machine which now lay hopelessly shattered on the laboratory floor. I did not tell very much of what I had seen, for I feared the coroner would be skeptical. But from the evasive outline I did give, the doctor told me that I had undoubtedly been hypnotized by the vindictive and homicidal madman. I wish I could believe that, doctor. It would help my shaky nerves if I could dismiss what I now have to think of the air and the sky about and above me. I never feel alone or comfortable and a hideous sense of pursuit sometimes comes chillingly on me when I am weary. What prevents me from believing the doctor is this one simple fact, that the police never found the bodies of those servants whom they say Crawford Tillinghast murdered. 